Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Truth and Life Today with Dr. John Newfeld. Uh, John, we're going into a new series, uh, The Mysteries of the Kingdom, found in Matthew chapter 11 to 13. You actually do a, uh, an expanded uh, series on this, uh, audio series. But over the next four weeks, you're going to be talking about the mysteries of the kingdom. Give us a sense of where we're going. Yeah, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven is, how is it that the kingdom of heaven is in our day? It's already come, mm -hmm. and yet, well, we might say, as theologians sometimes say, it's not been consummated, or how is it that this old sinful age continues to hang on so perniciously? Mm -hmm. How can both of those things have happened? Fantastic. Well, I look forward to it, and today will be a bit of an introduction to, yeah. the, to the entire series, and then we'll go from there. Uh, thanks, John. And remember to join us in just a few moments as Dr. Neufeld begins his new series, The Mysteries of the Kingdom. You know, in our culture, we have a number of ways of saying that stuff just doesn't make sense. I mean, one of the things you hear people saying on occasion is, you know, that's way beyond my pay grade. And when a person says that, I think what they mean is, look, I don't understand it, but I know there's somebody out there, you know, who's making more money than I am or who has greater insight or technological ability. They know the answer to that. But there's another way of saying that things don't make sense, and it's when we say, you know, that's a mystery to me. Um, I have a song here. Uh, Roy Orbison once sang a song entitled, She's a Mystery to Me. And forgive me here, but he talks of a woman who at night, he says, will take him to the twilight land where he falls beneath her spell. But in the morning, he says, our heaven turns to hell. And then he says, she's a mystery to me. Now, I think that Roy Orbison is not saying that that's beyond my pay grade, but somebody out there will be able to explain that. I think what he means to say is nobody will be able to explain that. I mean, that's inexplicable. I think that's what he's trying to say. Got another song that was called uh, It's a Mystery to Me, and it was written by Eddie Vedder, and it's about greed. He says, we have a greed of which we have a greed, and you think you want more than you need. And that also, he says, is a mystery to him. That is, how individuals continue to strive after things that they don't need. But I think that when Eddie Vedder says that's a mystery, he's simply saying, um, you can't explain that. It's called greed, and it's called want, but it doesn't make sense. So in either case, no matter how we use that word for, you know, it's a mystery to me, we mean that something out there is inexplicable. I mean, you can't understand how it can be this way. Now, in the Bible, um, especially in the Gospels. And when we talk about Jesus, we, we read about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. Now, when you read the word mystery, you might immediately say, well, uh, it's a mystery to me. So it must be something that's really hard to understand. It might be beyond my pay grade. Maybe you have to be a theologian or somebody who thinks philosophically to understand or, or something of that nature. But whatever it is, I don't think I'm going to understand it. But as a matter of fact, it's quite different than that. I mean, when the Bible uses the word mystery, it means that there is something that we could never figure out on our own. So up till then, we're tracking, yes? But at the other hand, when it says it's a mystery, it means that God can reveal it to us. In fact, the text that I want to deal with um, will say that Jesus himself says he's so thankful that the Father has revealed this stuff to little children, but to the wise he has withheld it. In other words, there is some knowledge which God gives, but once he gives it, we'll understand. Well, not long ago I was in church. Now, uh, keep that thought in mind. Here's another one. Not long ago I was in church and we were singing about the victory that Jesus brings in our lives. And, you know, people who had their hands raised, it was a wonderful time. But 
you know, in some kind of a cheeky fashion, I just started to think. I wonder what people think when we think about Christ being Lord of all and his victory over all things complete, then when we walk out the door and we come back into the world in which we live. And the world in which we live is filled with sin and ugliness. Uh, it's filled with, you know, dictators and it's filled with wars, but it's also filled with disease in our own lives. But here's another thing it's filled with. It's filled with all manner of things that militate against Jesus. So, for instance, it's been some time ago now when, uh, when uh, one organization that handed out free Bibles in public schools was prevented from ever doing so. So if the country that we live in can say, no Bibles for you, how is Jesus Lord of all and his victory is being felt everywhere? Now, you might say of that, well, I, uh, it's just a mystery to me. It's just inexplicable. You see what I'm saying? A and... I want to take a number of weeks and deal with uh, three important chapters in the Bible. It's Matthew 11, 12, and 13. And those three chapters are really an explanation of the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. And if you pay attention as you study them, you'll begin to gain an insight into what it means that God's great kingdom has come to earth. And, and so it, it will challenge us in terms of the way we think. So I, I'm setting out the, the main issue uh, in this section of the Bible, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. But before I do that, let me tell you a little bit about the book of Matthew. Uh, if you don't know it yet, let me explain it to you. There are four books in the New Testament, the first four books that you find there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and every one of them, all, all four of them, are a biography, if you will, of the life of Jesus. Those four books tell of his life, his deeds, his sayings, um, and everything that happened in the end. Now, all four of them are in many ways similar because they're telling the same story, but they tell the story from a different vantage point. So if you can imagine with me, for instance, that you witness a car accident, maybe you're in the car that was behind the car that had the accident. So that was your vantage point. But there was somebody standing at the street corner and that was their vantage point. And somebody was standing at the overhead walk and that was their vantage point. And a fourth person was in the car itself. Now, every single one of those stories, if everybody's telling the truth and they're accurate witnesses of what happened, they're going to tell you what happened, but they're going to change some of the, the, the details around the story because their vantage point allows them to witness what's going on from a unique perspective. When we come to the book of Matthew, Matthew is unique in this way. It is written primarily to a Jewish audience. And when you read through Matthew, you find out that 47 times, 47 times in the book of Matthew, Matthew actually quotes from the first or the Old Testament. 47 times. It's almost two times every chapter. See, what Matthew is doing is he's saying, here, let me tell you the account of Jesus, but as I do, let me show you from the first Testament how Jesus fulfills the expectations of the scripture. What Jesus did and what he said is exactly in accordance with what God had predicted so many years before. That's the book of Matthew. Now, many um, people who study the book of Matthew will say, you know, what's this book all about? It's a description of Jesus the King or Jesus the great Messiah. Jesus, the one who inherits the throne of David, who from that throne is destined to rule the world. But if he's ruling the world, then how does all this evil happen? Is it a mystery or has God revealed it?
Now I've said that, that Matthew is a gospel or a biography of Jesus, I guess we can say. It's a unique biography because it wants to present Jesus as the fulfillment of the hopes of the Old Testament. So let me give you an example uh, from Psalm chapter two. Uh, psalm two is what's called a messianic psalm. It's a psalm built with expectation of the coming of the Messiah. And when he comes, this is what the Messiah will do. So it begins by talking about the nations raging, peoples of the earth plotting in vain, and they're plotting against the Lord. They're saying, we will not serve the Lord. And then the Psalm says, and I'm reading Psalm two, verse four, that he who sits in heaven laughs. The Lord holds them, that is the nations in derision. He will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Now the king is the Messiah. I'm gonna establish my Messiah and place my Messiah in Jerusalem on my hill, holy hill. Now, now watch what it says after that. I tell you the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, when we read that kind of stuff, you can see that, that the Father is inviting the Messiah to come to him and to ask of the Father, and the Father will give to the Messiah the inheritance of all nations. And if the nation should resist him, then he will dash them to pieces. In other words, when the Messiah comes, he will demand complete obedience. He will be king of kings and lord of lords. And that's the hope that's found in the Old Testament. I mean, when that happens, it's a wonderful day. It's a day of goodness and righteousness. It's a day when evil doesn't flourish anymore. And so if you can imagine that as a backdrop to the writing of the book of Matthew, Matthew wants to tell us the story of the life of Jesus. But he does it in a way that's, well, it's kind of unique. Uh, when you read Matthew, unlike the other accounts, Matthew, in some fashion, sets a number of the events in Jesus' life not in chronological order as we might expect. You know, if you go to Luke, it's a highly chronological book, but not Matthew. Matthew puts the events of Jesus' life in topical order. So you can go through the book of Matthew, and so for instance, in Matthew 5 to 7, I mean, Matthew has his uh, Christ preaching the famous Sermon on the Mount, and then you go to Matthew chapters eight to 10, where Jesus gives a group of miracles. Uh, and uh, Matthew actually categorizes those miracles. And he talks about three groupings of miracles. And in the first grouping of miracles, which is found in Matthew eight, one to 17, he shows Jesus healing a man with leprosy. Then he heals a man with paralysis. And then in one glorious night in the town of Capernaum, he heals everybody there. And so Matthew is saying, now consider these three miracles and I'll tell you something about Jesus. Isn't it amazing how compassionate the king is? Even while it's promised he rules over all the nations with a rod of iron, have you noticed that this mighty ruler is so merciful to those who are struggling? Wow. And then Matthew puts together a second category of three miracles. That's Matthew 8, 23 to 9, verse 8. And he shows, first of all, Jesus calming the storm. Then secondly, healing two demon-possessed men. And then finally, uh, he heals a paralyzed man and then forgives the man's sins. And in the second group of miracles, Matthew is saying, notice also the authority of Jesus. Not only is he kind and compassionate, it's a wonderful king, but would you notice also the authority that he has over, the, over everything? I mean, he near, merely speaks a word and all of nature obeys his voice. Imagine that. 
And then look at his authority over the spiritual realm, the demonic realm. When, when he comes, the, the demons, they flee in, 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 in terror. And then he says, I mean, look at his authority even over a man's sins. It is he who has the ability to take away all sins. That's the nature of the authority of this man. So that's the second grouping of miracles. So you have Jesus, compassionate, then Jesus, authoritative. And then thirdly, you have another grouping of miracles that show us that nothing is too hard for Jesus. And that's found in Matthew 9, 18 to 34, where Jesus raises a dead girl. Then he heals a woman who's been suffering for 12 years. And then he gives sight to a blind man and health to the demon possessed at the same time. In other words, I mean, you can't name the hardest things. Even if it's actual physical death, Jesus overcomes everything. And you say, well, that's great news. Clearly, Matthew's making a case here. He's telling us, first of all, he's the fulfillment of the Old Testament, and he is the great king. And if you want evidence, let me give it to you. I'm going to tell you categories after categories of miracles that, that he's done that shows us he is the great king. He has authority over everything. Death obeys his voice. Nature obeys his voice. The demons obey his voice. Everything operates in accordance to his will. That's the might of the king who stepped onto this earth. Matthew says, I mean, step back and, and be overwhelmed. But I can almost hear the critic, can't you? Wait a minute. You know, maybe that happened 2,000 years ago, but it just seems to me that ever since that's happened, well, there's a lot of ugliness that keeps happening in the world. And, and I, I've noticed that Jesus doesn't seem to be doing anything about that. And we might say to ourselves, well, maybe that's just a mystery to us. We know that Jesus is King of Kings. We'll go back to our churches and raise our hands and sing the glory of the great King who rules over all things. And then we walk out the door and things just don't make sense. How is that ever possible? And that's where we come to Matthew 11, 12, and 13. Those three chapters after Matthew has made the case that this indeed is the king. Matthew says, let me take some time and show you some events of Jesus' life, and I'll categorize them as before in topical order. But there, you know, it's the case from the opposition. It's people saying, I, I don't know if I can believe it, even though all those miracles have happened. I'm just not so sure that he is the king. And Matthew says, okay, I'm going to face those doubts squarely. And so as we look at Matthew 11, 12, and 13, we're going to find out that the layers of darkness get rolled back. And soon we begin to understand what kind of a king Jesus actually is and why the world actually makes sense with this kind of a king. So that's what Matthew 11 to 13 seeks to reveal to us. Amazing material. Let me give you a little spoiler alert about Matthew 11 to 13. Uh, Matthew 11 and 12 really presents the problem and it's Matthew 13 that really reveals the solution. Uh, Matthew 13, again, in, category, in categories, Matthew puts together a, an entire chapter of seven parables that Jesus told. They're interesting. Parable, well, that's a story, you know, but it's a story that is not just about something that could have happened and one sees happening, but it's a story when you think about it is just pregnant with meaning. And that's what we have here. So there are seven parables in Matthew 11 to 13, and they're simple stories, and they tell us the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven. 
But before I tell you those seven parables, let's set up the whole thing. If Matthew 13 is the climax, then Matthew 11 to 12 are two chapters that signals something that should lead people to wonder whether or not, indeed, Jesus is the great king. The first event happened um, in Matthew chapter 11, and it's, it's about a man by the name of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, as Matthew has told us in his book, is the fulfillment of the promises that were given to us in the book of Isaiah. Before the Messiah actually comes, God will send a forerunner who will make ready the pathway for the Messiah to come. And when we read the book of Matthew, we find out that man was John the Baptist. But by the time we come to Matthew chapter 11, John is in jail. Uh, in fact, he's unrighteously in jail. John's been telling people to repent because the, the great kingdom of heaven was at hand. It was going to tumble into the present hour. You better get ready right now. Get your, your slate clean with God. And in the process of doing that, I mean, John's not a respecter of persons, you know. So whether or not you're the least or the greatest, he'll call everybody. He's going to offend everybody. And so there was a man by the name of, of Herod, and, and Herod um, was an individual who had married his brother's wife, basically ripped off his own brother for his wife, and John confronted him and called it what it was, a sin against God. And Herod responded by not repenting, but he threw John in jail and said, I'm not going to put up with that, you see. And so there's John languishing in prison, and if you know the end of the story, it doesn't end well. One day, I mean, Herod's wife, remember, she's the one that, you know, has kind of been tarnished in this whole matter. Um, she has her daughter dancing before a crowded room in Herod's palace. And so she's, she's, she's dancing there and, and it so pleased the guests that in drunkenness and exuberance, Herod says to her, I mean, I'll give you anything up to half of the kingdom. Just tell me what you want. And she goes to her mom and they are you know, whispering in the background and she comes out and she says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And so not to offend the dinner guests and the promises that he'd made, he sends a swordsman in there and they hack off John's head on the spot and put it on a platter and show it to the dinner guests in Herod's palace. See, that's how John the Baptist ended. But when we come to Matthew 11, he's merely in prison and he's imprisoned by a man who doesn't care about righteousness and doesn't care about the kingdom of heaven. He imprisons anyone he wants to. And we find John in prison and he's asking the question, he sends messengers out to Jesus who's doing these spectacular miracles and he says to him, are you the one who is to come or, or shall we look for someone else? John is vacillating. I mean, if Jesus is the great king, and if he is authority over everything, and if he's the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament hoped for, then how is it that wicked people so easily get their way? See, I don't know whether or not you've got the same question, but doesn't that sound remarkably contemporary? If God is good and loving and all-powerful, and he sent his son into the world to rule over all things, how is it that such horrible things keep on happening? If light has come into a dark world, why is the world still so dark? See, that's a, that's a great question, and it's one that Matthew wants us to continue to read because he said, the more I teach you about the life of Jesus, the more I'm gonna tell you about that. So there's that. And then the second uh, thing that comes up is that Jesus and his disciples are walking through a grain field on the Sabbath, and they're, they're hungry. They're genuinely hungry. They haven't had enough to eat. They're not peckish. They're, they're hungry. They're hungering. 
and they take some of the heads of grain and begin to eat them. But there are Pharisees that say, you know, that's a direct violation of Sabbath. And if you're violating Sabbath, you're violating the law of God. And therefore you can't be the Messiah. No Messiah would violate the law of God. So Matthew wants us to see that. And then there's a third a huge objection that also comes up, and it's an example that's found in Matthew 12, 22, all the way to 50. And in that passage, the Pharisees come to Jesus and they say, look, there is an explanation for the miracles. And the explanation is you're demon-possessed. Now, in our day, we wouldn't usually talk that way, but I think in our day, we might say, well, the miracles didn't even happen. They're written down in paper here, but that's the explanation for what's happened. It's just a fancy myth that's come all the way. And so Matthew takes every single one of the objections that we had, and then he leads us to a series of parables. And they're amazing stories. The first is the story of a sower who goes out to sow. The second is another story about sowing, but this time an enemy is coming and sowing weeds in a plentiful harvest. And then they have a third story. It's the story of a small mustard seed, which is planted in a garden and it becomes the largest tree in the garden. And then fourth, he tells the story of a woman who puts leaven into flour and then breaks bread. And then fifth, a parable of a man who discovers a treasure hidden in a field that is bigger than anything he could ever have imagined. And then there's a story of a merchant who discovers a pearl of incredible value. And then finally, he tells the story of a group of fishermen who threw a net into the ocean and they dragged up everything, both good and bad, and then they threw away that which was bad and kept that which was good. Series of seven stories. And we might say, what in the world are those stories all about? And how can those stories answer the questions that we're asking? And here's what Matthew is telling us. God is revealing mysteries to anyone to whose ears he will open. And if you bring questions to the Word of God, here's the wonderful news. The Word of God has answers to the questions that we're asking. It's not that we're just called upon to believe up against the evidence. It's rather that we're called upon to consider the evidence and the explanation for the evidence and ask yourself this question. Is this stuff really true? And are the stories that Jesus told about the way in which he was acting, do they describe that and give us all the hope that we need to live? It's a marvelous thing about studying the mysteries of the kingdom. It gives faith. Welcome back to Truth and Life Today with Dr. John. John, thanks so much for the beginning of this series, yeah. the, the Mysteries of the Kingdom. I, I guess I have to ask a question. Maybe others are thinking this same thing. So why the mysteries? Why the parables? Why yeah. can't uh, Jesus have been just very overt and say, here's the way it is, yeah. and, uh, and just spell it out, and no mystery would be involved? I think there's a, there's a kind of a longer answer to that. I mean, we might go to Isaiah where God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are my ways your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. At the outset, I think all of us have to just confess before God that we'll never get our mental arms around God. We're not big enough for that. Um, so we won't figure stuff out on our own, um, but God knows all things. And that's one of the reasons why some things are mysteries to us, but are not to God. I think there are other reasons as well. 
And one of the reasons is that uh, Paul says that when he went to Corinth, you'll remember he said that I didn't come with lofty words of wisdom. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in Greek culture and especially in Corinth, uh, it was really popular to have these popular orators, speakers, public speakers that would come to these huge stadiums and they would wow the crowds with, with oratory. I mean, everything from humor to serious stuff, weaving in philosophical concepts and people just loved that stuff and they just ate it up. And what Paul is saying is, I refuse that technique so that your, your faith would rest not on the power of men, but on the wisdom of God. And I think what God is saying to us is, there are some things that I withhold from you until you bend your knee before me. God will not reveal them, not because we're not curious or anything of that nature, but because we'll take his truths and throw them into the streets or trample them into the mud. Uh, We will do nothing with it. So I think those are some of the reasons why God has withheld some things from us. And that I know he makes clear in Matthew uh, chapter 13. Now, I don't know if there's a quick answer to this or not. I'm not even sure the uh, uh, it, it's an appropriate question, but is it true to say that Jesus was the only user of parables in the New Testament? Um, you know, I guess it depends on how you define a parable. Um, I know that there are all sorts of images, let's say in Paul, yeah. um, and uh, he will talk about, you know, that Sometimes he even speaks about, you know, um, Sarah and Hagar as representing two different covenants, and he builds a whole, you know, story around that. Um, But the way in which Jesus tells those parables, no, there's nothing like it in the New Testament. He alone does that. Thanks so much, Sean. We look forward to continuing this series, uh, The Mysteries of the Kingdom, right here on Truth and Life Today. 